In the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, we have a truth stated in verse 10 particularly, a truth that I believe I have not appreciated or appropriated in times past as I should have. Many times our spiritual vision is dimmed by traditional concepts. And sometimes we are unable to see the vitality, the vibrancy, the vigor, the beauty of great Bible truths. This sometimes results from our thinking continually in one familiar area of emphasis to the exclusion of other great truths that we do not appreciate as fully as we should. I think that it could be said of much of our emphasis that it's grown out of controversy. That because an error-filled religious world has frequently affirmed that it's impossible to fall from grace, we have repudiated this error and we have convincingly proven from Scripture that one can fall from grace. But in doing this, we have neglected to stress the assurance that can be had in and through Jesus the Christ our Lord. The religious world generally has denied the essentiality of one's immersion into Christ and into his death for the forgiveness of sins. And therefore we have opposed this truth, but in doing so perhaps we fail to lay the stress that we should upon the fact that we're saved by faith. And this well sums up the entirety of man's part. And on and on we might go illustrating this thing. Today I'd like for us to lift, as it were, the veil of traditionalism and traditional thinking from our eyes. You know, this idea that we have so often expressed we've got the truth has been something of a deterrent to the full restoration of New Testament Christianity within our lives because this has tended to breed a sort of complacency and a of attitude, well, we have it now, and we can level off now and sort of recline, as it were, and rest easy upon our laurels. And yet I'm convinced that while in theory this may contain certain truth, in practice there is much restoration yet to be done. And I believe that there are many of us, some of us who have worked publicly, who have talked publicly, who have yet to fully appropriate and appreciate and apply within our own lives some truths of vital import. Now, I've said all that to introduce a very familiar passage, but may it come to us fresh today from God's Word as we see it anew. And in order that we might see it in its context, we'll not just notice verse 10, but we'll go back to verse 6 here in Romans chapter 5. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, 
we shall be saved by his life. Christ ministers to you in two distinct ways defined by this passage. He reconciles you to God by his death, number one. And this is the, the statement of an accomplished fact, something that has already taken place. He has reconciled you to God by his death. Which sacrifice is appropriated, as explained later in this very book, by our obedience from the heart to that form of doctrine. But he not only reconciles us to God by his death, but much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And while the former states an accomplished fact, the latter states that which is a continuing process. Right now, we're being saved by his life. What does this mean? Well, don't limit this to the 33-year tenure of our Lord in the tenement of clay, his body upon this earth. Were it not for that sinless life, his death would not have its power, would be divested of its power and of its efficacy, but that's not Paul's idea here when he talks about his life. There are two things that we believe are here involved. One we suggest only briefly, and the other we want to explore as fully as possible in our limited time this morning. We shall be saved by his life. The Hebrew writer informed us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. In Hebrews chapter 9, the closing paragraph, beginning there with about verse 23, going on through verse 28, we understand that Christ did appear to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself, that he shall appear without sin, that is, that he'll come again, receiving us. But we also notice that he now appears in heaven. We have then an high priest who has entered not into the holy place made with hands, but even now he appears in heaven for us. Now to appear, the Hebrew writer states. Notice, now to appear. And may I stress that little three-letter word, N-O-W, now to appear. So he lives to make intercession. And we sing, I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me, intercedes for me. He now appears in the presence of God. Jesus Christ then did not simply consummate his redemptive work upon the cross and demonstrate his deity by his resurrection, then to ascend, as it were, to the Father's right hand and there to now be an abstract and impersonal and remote and removed deity, having accomplished his work and now no longer involved in working in our behalf. He works in our behalf even now. For he, John tells us, 1 John 2, is our advocate. If any man sin, we have an advocate. This is the same Greek word, paraclete, that we have referring to the Spirit over in John 16, the comforter. He is the comforter. He is the paraclete. He is the advocate. He is that one who pleads our cause. And he now intercedes. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. 
not to a dead Jesus, but to a living Lord, that we affix our allegiance and our affection and our love. And our faith and trust is placed in one who lives and we're saved by his life as he intercedes for us. O wounded feet of Jesus, so weary seeking me, stand at God's bar of judgment and intercede for me. Stand at God's bar of judgment and intercede for me. Those precious hands of Jesus once lifted on the tree. Lift up those hands in heaven and intercede for me. Lift up those hands in heaven and intercede for me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But when Paul in Romans 5 and 10 said that we were reconciled by his death and shall be saved by his life, I'm very much convinced, not only in the context of Romans and in harmony with the spirit of the book, but in harmony with the entire tenor of the New Testament, that this lie by which we're saved is his life, not ours, but his. But it's that life which he lives in us, and we're saved by his life. This is a truth, brethren, that we have not grasped as we ought. I believe there are lots of people, we sometimes say, you know, we talk about folks who've been brought up in the church, raised in the church. Nobody was ever raised in the church. And if you'll study Hebrews, the 8th chapter, you'll understand why this is the case. Whereas, as Jeremiah explains it in Jeremiah 31, and the Hebrew writer quotes it, under the old covenant it was necessary even to teach those who had come into the kingdom to know the Lord, this will not be true in the new covenant. For this new covenant is not entered by virtue of physical heredity and physical birth. You're not born into it as the infant Hebrew might be born into that old covenant people of God, Old Testament people of God. But rather, within the new covenant, they'll not teach every man his brother and every man his fellow citizen to know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. But I think you know what's meant by that expression, raised or brought up in... I have no particular fondness for it. But many who have experienced this, which ought to be a great heritage and a great blessing and a wonderful legacy, find it very hard to ever see some of these truths because by a sort of osmosis they absorb that to which they're constantly exposed. And they're not exposed to this spirit of Paul which is the spirit of Christianity as found in Galatians 2.20. This idea of the exchanged life, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ liveth in me. But rather they see a people, all too many of which, serve grudgingly and look for the irreducible, barest, minimum legal requirements whereby and by which they think they can get by. This isn't real Christianity. Christianity is Christianity. It's more than just another ethic. It's more than just another legal code. It's not that. Christ is the very dynamic of the demands that he makes. And it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1 and 27. It's Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, Ephesians 3 and 17. It's this, this attitude for me to live is Christ, Philippians 1 and 21. Christ in you, Romans 8 and 10, 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. This is that which distinguishes Christianity from other systems. Confucianism is hardly a religion, actually. 
because this idea of a personal Lord is lacking. Here's a system of ethics. Here's a code of morals. Here's a a legal system. Here's certain principles. But there's no indwelling presence. There's none to whom we can look as my all in all in this particular system that so heavily influenced the Oriental world. Christ stands out. He's different. Christianity is different. Because Christianity condensed to its barest essentials is Christ in you the hope of glory. And anything short of that produces evangelifish, if I might use a coin phrase here. People without any spiritual vertebrae. The people without any real spiritual strength. Without any real spiritual backbone. For this comes not from Judaism, not from Moses' law, not from any purely legal system, but this comes from Christ and having Christ within us. And Paul said we're reconciled to God by the death of His Son, and much more being reconciled, we are saved, we shall be saved, a continuing process by His life. Christ was actually, externally, with His followers previous to Pentecost as described in Acts 2. Thereafter, Jesus Christ was not with them, but in them. And the life that Christ lived and has been lived and is being lived over and over and over again upon the earth as the Christ life becomes our life and the self-life is totally subjugated and exchanged for the Christ life. And so this thing of Christian living is simply an exchanged life. The Christ life in exchange for the self-life. And so Christ dwells within the Christian in the Scriptures that we've noted. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells within the Christian. He gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey Him. Acts 5 and 32. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Two terms of pardon pardon stated here, and two blessings stated. And we've stressed one term of pardon almost to the exclusion of the other in practice, and we've stressed one blessing almost to total forgetfulness of the other. Repent! Let me rearrange the emphasis somewhat. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. We're not to grieve the Spirit, whereby we're sealed on the day of our redemption. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. The work of the Spirit is to bear witness of Christ. Jesus Himself taught in John chapter 14 through 16. The Spirit then bears witness of Christ. And as we are filled with the Spirit ever we see then the fact that He is the Savior and that our sufficiency is in Christ. Now then, if the Christian life is the exchanged life, and if the problems of what shall I do and where shall I go and how shall I conduct myself in this relationship and what shall be my ethic with regard to business dealings, if... If these problems are solved upon the principle of the exchanged life, not a long list of do's and don'ts. Get rid of this idea. Where does it say don't gamble? Where does it say do not dance? Where does it say thou shalt not do this? Thou shalt not do that? Friend of mine, this is a word of principles. 
all of which can easily be applied once we have the basic attitude. Get that and the rest is easy. If you don't have that, then the, ne the rest will never work itself out. So it's so imperative then that we have Christ within us. But now then, to know how, to know how His life can be lived on earth, in the flesh, not His but ours now, to know how that can be done now, we need to know how it was done then. Now watch. And the answer to this thing is going to be a little bit surprising. John 5 and 19, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of Himself. Now how did He live His life then? When He actually walked this earth. We're saved by His life, not ours, but His. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us. Romans 8. It is His power working in us, both the will and the do of His good pleasure. We are His workmanship, Ephesians 2 and 10. We put so much stress on the human side and so little on the divine. And this is the key and the cause of so much of our frustration and feelings of futility. We've missed something basic in Christianity, I'm convinced. Now listen, how did He live that life then in order that we might know how it can be lived now? That we might be saved by His life and that we might truly say that we are His hands and His feet and His tongue and His eyes and that He lives in us. All right? He said, John 5, 19, notice once more, the Son can do nothing of Himself. In chapter 8 and verse 28 of that same book, we hear Jesus say, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am, or that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Repeatedly, particularly in John's account of his life, Jesus affirmed, The Son can do nothing of Himself. My doctrine is not mine, but Him who sent me. This idea is repeated in essence in somewhat different words in the very closing verses of John chapter 12, and you have it repeatedly with reoccurring frequency and emphasis in John's account of his life. The Son can do nothing of Himself. And thus in His flesh life, in His earth life, in His life here, when that one who was in the form of God took the form of a servant, when God stepped out of eternity into time in the form of Jesus, during this period of time, that one who possessed the fullness of the Godhood or Godhead, Colossians 2 and 9, did nothing of himself. Everything he did was done by virtue of the Father's power and in submission to the Father's will. And his life was totally and completely without a single reservation, without a single if, without a single mental clause or reservation, surrendered to the will of the Father. Now then, we're to be saved by his life. And here is the principle that saves us from the futility of self-effort and trying to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. All too often, it's been outer compulsion and not this inner impulsion to do His will. 
And this is one reason why we have no great faith in gimmicks or browbeating or driving or trying to compel or coerce because it's just not worth anything. It's not just what we do, but why we do it that matters. And motivation is crucially important in Christianity. You might submit the form of the doctrine, but it avails nothing if there's no obedience from the heart. You might give of your means, but this is unavailing if not properly motivated, according to Second Corinthians chapter 9. In fact, you could give your body to be burned and bestow all your goods to feed the poor, and without love, it profits you nothing. And there are some of us who have even served publicly, and we've grown so weary and so tired on occasion. And sometimes we ourselves have known how barren we are, and others have praised and encouraged and commended, but within ourselves we've known how weak and barren we are. Because the real key to spiritual life is Christ within. And if our motives become mixed, and if ego drive, or money, or ambition, or position, or acclaim, or praise, or whatever it might be, or the pharisaical spirit of self-righteousness, I fast twice so we can give a tithe of all I possess. If this is the motivation, I want to tell you something, it's no wonder you're tired. No wonder you serve grudgingly. Suppose you brought yourself a brand new car. Beautiful. Powerful. But instead of driving it, you just push it, and you push it, and you push it, and you push it. And finally, it reaches the point that it just has to be pushed now. Or you get rid of the thing. Now, the Lord makes accessible to us immense power. To make this clear, let me raise this question. Christ said the Son can do nothing of Himself, and yet what could He do? Everything. Through the power of the Father who worked through Him, and to whom the Son was wholly and totally committed and submitted, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. Now, what can Christ do through you? And we answer everything. And you challenge it. No. The only limitation here is your own faith and willingness to commit yourself. Paul said in Philippians 4 and 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Well, what about death? You mean by that that we could do like Mary Baker Eddy and her adherents and say there is no death, there is no disease, and so on? No. But I'm persuaded that neither height nor depth, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nay, in all these things and other things in the context, famine, peril, nakedness, the sword, in all these things we're more than conquerors. I ask you, will there ever be any exigency, any temptation, any problem, even death itself, that will be too much for the resources of Jesus Christ? And you answer emphatically, no! Well, friend of mine, he lives in the Christian. And our trouble is that we've been pushing the car. Quit pushing. Quit pushing. And get in and switch on the power, as it were, by virtue of a faith, a simple childlike faith, an implicit trust, and a complete surrender and commitment to His will in response to His grace. And then subject every situation and every problem and every temptation and every hill that's encountered along the way 
to the resources of His power because He's adequate for every situation or every problem or every temptation. And Paul said, It's no longer I that lives, but Christ liveth in me, and I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Some of us need to quit pushing and begin to walk by faith. We need to stop this carnal self-effort and begin to be motivated inwardly by a response to His grace that produces self-crucifixion and abandonment that Christ lives within us. Suppose I had a glove up here. I don't, and maybe it would be more vivid if I did. But suppose I had a glove up here, and I say, Glove, pick up the testament. Glove won't do it. All right, I'll explain how it's done. Now, you've got four fingers and a thumb there, Glove. Let me just tell you how this is done. It just simply means to put your grip or grasp over the testament and apply pressure, pick it up. I can tell him all day long how it's done, and the glove still will not pick up the testament. You can tell a fellow all day long how personal work is done. And he's still not going to be teaching people until Christ is within. All right, now then. I have a glove that's picked up my testaments a number of times. But never before or without the hand being within the glove. And then that glove can accomplish anything commensurate with the power and the capacities of the hand within the glove. Now Jesus said in John 15 and 5, Without me you can do nothing. We've been slow to learn that. And I really believe that there are some of us who have just had lives filled with activity and we're going to spend a lifetime doing nothing. And we've been real busy. But it's going to be a lifetime of doing nothing. Because there's been the wrong motivation and the wrong source of power. Christ said, without me you can do nothing. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. We must be in him and he must be in us. For us to be in Christ, that's redemption. For Christ to be in us, that's sanctification. For us to be in Christ, that simply means that heaven can be our home if we're faithful. For Christ to be in us, that means this earth can be our workshop, or His workshop, as we're faithful to Him. And thus, He's the hand within the glove. And the glove now, pulsates with power, not because of any inherent worth or power within itself, but because of the power of the hand within it. And we lament the fact that the church is lacking in vitality, settled on its lees, to use the figure of one of the Old Testament prophets. Lees meaning the dregs that would sink to the bottom, the syrupy part uh, of the beverage. And we're settled on our lees, so to speak. Here's a slumbering giant with great potential. What's wrong? There's nothing wrong that cannot be cured by Jesus Christ. Here's the center and circumference of it all. And our trouble is that we've been trying to do it by ourselves. We've been pushing, as it were, when we should have been calling upon this great power at our disposal. There are lots of folks who've been in the church for a long time. No doubt, with regard to so many of these, they truly obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. But very shortly thereafter, they, like the elder son, began to live beneath their privileges. He said, Why, you never kill for me the fatted calf. And the father said, All that I have is thine. The riches and power of the son himself is at our disposal. 
And that one in whom dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily can dwell in us. And so Paul said that in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Paul said, my sufficiency is in that one who has all sufficiency. That's the idea of Philippians 4.13. Very similar to what you have here in Colossians 2 and 9. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Oh, how this changes lives. So it's not just a matter of trying to imitate Him. And there's a, a standard set 19 centuries ago. But rather, there's the matter of the indwelling presence. Christ dwells within the Christian if this word is true. The Holy Spirit is given the Christian and dwells within the Christian and bears testimony to Christ and His deity and power if this word is true. And this is to be the motivation, and not that somebody gave me a card, primarily. Not that somebody used some very appealing gimmick that stirred me superficially on the occasion, but it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. A lot of people that are frustrated, that have feelings of futility, that are ready to throw up their hands and say, what, what's the use? And it's because... They've been pushing rather than trusting in that one who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think who can work in us, both the will and the do of his good pleasure, that one who is able. Now then, the Son said he can do nothing. I can do nothing. The Son does nothing of himself. John five nineteen and eight twenty eight. Now that life is to be lived today. And we're saved by His life on earth today as He lives in us. And we become a part of His spiritual body and we're His hands and His tongue. And He lives in us. And thus the whole body is fitly joined together and compacted and draws its power and its life from Christ the head. Ephesians 4, 11 through about verse 16. We're saved by His life. No exigency, no temptation, no problem, but what He is adequate for it. Now, when we trust self, we are at one moment self-sufficient in our feelings, a braggart, and the very next moment overcome with self-pity. Not so. If self is crucified and slain, and Christ lives within us, and we taste the sweet, the sweet fruit of this exchange life. I frankly believe there is a great danger confronting those who preach publicly, confronting those who teach publicly, confronting, confronting those who lead within the church with regard to this matter of motivation. I believe that there is a serious problem confronting those who actually become the beneficiary of that which ought to be a great blessing, a Christian home, and yet, unless in life they see this principle... They may grow up thinking that Christianity simply amounts to saying, I'm a member of the Church of Christ, and a rigid orthodoxy is enough to save us. And by the way, the sort of thing we're trying to teach and preach today does not make for doctrinal weakness, but doctrinal strength. But this strength does not emanate from traditional views, long cherished and handed down, but not really understood. But rather it emanates from the fact that Jesus is my all in all. I love Him, I trust Him, I serve Him. And it's Jesus who through His Word authorizes that we praise Him with a cappella singing, for example. 
This doesn't make for doctrinal weakness. But rigid, uh, a rigid orthodoxy, a pharisaical self-righteousness, a traditionalism, a proud spirit that we're glad we're not like other men and we've got the truth. Friend of mine, this is antagonistic to the kind of spirit that we need to have and that's necessary to this exchange of life. We must bring our whole lesson to a focal point by illustrating how in every emergency, in every situation, while I in and of myself am inadequate, feeble and futile are my best efforts, and therefore I dare not trust the feeble arm of flesh. But there is not a single hill that I'll have to climb, that I'll have to climb in and of and by myself. No need for me to push the vehicle, as it were, because there is one who can save me by his life, his life in me now. And this life can save me. And to illustrate the point, we couldn't talk about every problem, every temptation. Let's just take that one that seems to be most extreme. Death itself. Brother Clarence Daly once went to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary to visit a prisoner serving a 40-year term. He was checked carefully for personal belongings, for whatever he might have upon his person. And then an armed guard was to escort him. The door was unlocked. And then it was locked behind them. And he and the guard began to walk down a long corridor, their footsteps echoing loudly. They came to another door. That door was unlocked and then locked behind them. And they continued to walk. And finally, passing through a third door that was unlocked and then locked behind them, Brother Daly said that it suddenly struck me that I was unafraid that I had no fear because I was walking with that one who had the keys. In Revelation 1 and 18, Jesus said, I am the living one and was dead and am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. There are many, many situations to which you are totally inadequate. In fact, without Him, you can do nothing. But with Him, and we say it thoughtfully and advisedly and in light of Scripture, you can do everything. And even death itself, though you and I must experience it, will not conquer us. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Through Him that loved us. I wasn't afraid because I was walking with Him who had the keys. I have the keys of death and Hades. Do you walk with that one? Yea, it ought to be even more intimate than that. Does he live in you? Paul didn't say, for me to live is to live like Christ, or to live for Christ, or to live with Christ. He said, for me to live is Christ. And I'm saved by his life. By the life of Christ in me. He said, the Son can do nothing of himself. And I say, I can do nothing of myself. And therefore, in everything, in every situation, I am totally and completely dependent by faith, simple, childlike faith upon Him and His power. This banishes doubt. This destroys frustration. This does away with the futility that we feel when we say, Oh, I'm so worthless and unworthy. The Lord knows that. But you're saved by His life. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled not by us, but in us. 
through the power of Him that works in us. And He has the keys. And He can be in you and you can be in Him. You'll put all your faith and trust in Him. You'll express that faith in penitence and turning from sin. If upon confession with the mouth of the Lord Jesus, you'll be immersed into His death. And then if thereafter, unlike the Israelites who look back to the flesh pots of Egypt, you'll not look back to that old self-life and to carnality and self-trust. But you'll just say, Lord, without you I can't do a thing. But with you I can do everything. And so self is crucified, and now then you just work through me. I'm through pushing. I'm beginning now to trust. I'm walking by faith, not by sight. Brethren, there's some of you who need to walk like this. You haven't been. There's some who are outside of Christ who need to come today. We're praying and pleading in your behalf. Be you reconciled to God. Won't you come right now while we stand and while we sing?